So uh, tonight I thought we could talk about uh, free will and choice. So it's often a question that comes up in spiritual discussions um, to see what kind of responses uh, a person comes up with. So it's one of those questions that's sort of open-ended and open to argument, really. Um, so I wanted to take a look at that just to, in more depth because it's easy to, you know, try to go straight to a conclusion like, yes, there is, or no, there isn't. And um, it seems like it should be that way. I mean, we have certainly have a sense that um, we have a choice and we can make decisions and we have free will to do so. There's certainly that sense of it. Um, so the question is, when we look a little bit more deeply than just presuming that, therefore, that must be the case, um, then, it, then it gets more interesting. <laughs> and like a lot of things in spirituality, it's not as it first appears. Right? Because it's not really a um, yes or no question. And to, to really get there, to, to get to a, a deeper level of understanding about um, what that really is about, um, you know, we can look in, in our own direct experience of um, how true is it for us. I mean, if we had free will and the ability to choose, um, we could choose to be happy. Right? And then we would. We would be happy. We could choose not to get angry. And forever after, we wouldn't get angry. You know, we could choose to, um, you know, stop this thought stream in our head and have 30 minutes of peace and quiet. You know, we could um, decide to exercise. And thereafter, every day for the rest of our lives, we exercise without effort because we decided to and we had free will to do that and um, we uh, had that level of control right it's sort of what free will implies free will without control of the outcome what what does that even mean right? so the idea of free will and choice implies um, the ability to some degree to um, determine the outcome outcome right we can't determine the outcome what good is the free will you know then it's just um not anything more than a than a hope All right so um one of the things that we can notice is that even when we're um trying to control just or change or make decisions about you know our personal habits or our things that we think about or um, things that we do or not do, even that we can quickly see becomes um, very challenging, right? You know, it's like the, uh, you know, the January joke about, you know, New Year's resolutions that, you know, were dropped pretty quickly after New Year's. Um, but if we had free will and therefore control, um, that wouldn't be the case. Um, and we can also see that if, if there was 
uh, choice, and that choice had, you know, a consistent um, determinative quality to uh, how things turned out, then, then we could also affect things that happen around us, right? Affect, affect the outcome of that. And they do sometimes, right? You know, our efforts, our, our choices um, sometimes sometimes work out like we thought. In fact, they seem to work out just often enough to keep us in the game. You know, it's sort of like uh, slot machines in Las Vegas. You know, they pay off just often enough to keep the gamblers engaged. And it works. I mean, the sort of uh, the extravagance of Las Vegas or, you know, evidence of that strategy works. There's a sense of, um, well, it might, it might not pay off every time, you know, but, you know, I still have um, free will. I still have the ability to make that choice. And, you know, it may not always turn out that way. I may not always do what I thought I had decided to do, but I do often enough that it justifies my belief in free will. Okay, so we could, I mean, to, to be a little more realistic about it, we can see that this free will isn't sort of um, determinative of our destiny. It's more like a statement of intention, right? You know, this is what I would like to have happen. This is, you know, I would like to not get angry. I would like, you know, to be able to stop my thought stream. In more of an intention than an ability to control. So what, what we're doing here is, is just to see if we can soften up um, the question from being, well, do I or don't I have free will? So we're just seeing that, yeah, there's that sense of having free will, but when we begin to investigate it, um, it's not quite so certain. Right? So the um, one of the things about uh, having this sense of free will, it's like, well, of, of course, of course I do, you know, of course I can, of course I can make a decision and choose to do this rather than that. Um, but when we look at, you know, we can look back on different points that we made decisions uh, in our life that, you know, we thought we were making um, a choice based on our own. Um, objective criteria and but when we really look at the choices that we've made up to this point in our life um, you know perhaps we can see how much they were influenced by what went before you know ways that we were you know conditioned from an early age to prefer some things rather than others to look at you know, things about ourselves and other people in the world in a certain way, how much of that was um, a conditioning that, you know, started in the home and the neighborhood having to do with the particular economic conditions that we lived in, um, what schools we went to, what friends we had, what um, our parents did what they their attitudes were, what political parties they belonged to, what religions, what race, what countries they grew up in, et cetera, et cetera. Right? 
And had we had all of those circumstances been different, um, can we not see that our conditioning at this point and the choices that we would make based on that conditioning would be quite different if we were born in other circumstances, other families, other experiences. So we have to consider how how much of those of that conditioning starting in very early childhood, how much of it we took on um, knowingly and intentionally, and how much of it just happened. You know, if the condition was just taken on by happenstance, just a matter of circumstances um, that we happen to find ourselves into, uh, and our actions today are, um, to a large degree, come out of that conditioning, the way we look at the world and ourselves, um, then how much of the choices today are a result of free will versus just conditioned behavior, the way this body-mind was conditioned. And we can imagine, you know, or argue saying, no, no, I can think in this moment and make a decision um, and think to do this rather than that. Then we can ask, where did that thought come from? And we can say, well, I just, I just thought it just now. Therefore, it's original and I'm free to make that choice. But then when we really ask, well, where did the impulse to think that particular thought at this moment, where did that come from? And maybe we can trace that causation back a few iterations of thought, and then we lose, then we, then we lose the trail, right? But we can, you know, to make that argument, yes, it was an original thought out of nowhere, and I was the one to think it, um, presumed that there was no, that there was somehow an initiating thought, and that there's a person here to make it. So we can look at that. Because right? that's, that's really what we're getting down to. If, if I have free will, then... There's an I in there somewhere that has that free will, that possesses that power. So we can look at the, you know, that idea isn't housed in the body. Right? It's not that the body is imagining that it has free will. Right? It does what it does, but it doesn't, it doesn't possess that thought, idea that I am a body and I have free will. That happens in our, our head, right? That happens in our thinking mind. So then the question is, you know, where in our thinking mind is this individual separate self located that has the power, the free will to decide what to do? Make that choice. 
So we can see even when we sit down to meditate and uh, we encounter this pesky thought stream, that even on that level of being able to um, control that thought stream, we find ourselves very quickly to be uh, incapable of doing that. You know, in fact, the more we try to do that, the less, the more, the noisier the mind gets. So even on the on the level of um, you know this idea of a personal me controlling um, this thought stream that is happening, even on that level, we can see that we're ineffective. But if we had free will, we could control that. We could just Tell it to be quiet and come back when, when I need you. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. Um, so it's interesting in um, the English language, uh, if, if a sentence has the word thinking, the implication, whether it's stated or not, but the implication is that there's a subject that it's referring to. There's a thinker. That is thinking. A person is thinking, I am thinking, they are thinking. Um, someone is thinking. Um, in ancient Chinese, um, Taoism originated with Lao Tzu, Chuan Tzu, 2600 BC, thereabouts. And back then, uh, the Chinese language um, allowed a term like thinking um, without having to define a particular person who was the thinker, right? So it acknowledged that thinking happens. We, we can all easily agree on that. The difficulty is that the conditioning that we have in terms of being brought up in, for most of us in the English language, is that um, a thinker is is always implied. So then we're faced with the idea of can there really be thinking if there's not a some entity in there doing the thinking? <laughs> you know, some personal self, the one deciding what to think and when to think it. But the difficulty is um, just avoided in Taoism, which is um, to a large extent uh, incorporated within um, the uh, Buddhism as it arrived in China. Um, the uh, term for that um, combination is called Chan, which later became Zen in, once it got to Japan. But that early sense um, uh, didn't necessitate a thinker. Thinking clearly acknowledged. It's just that the uh, insistence that there then be a thinker uh, was just avoided. Whereas in, you know, for us, having grown up um, speaking English, most of us, um, the idea, well, certainly there's a thinker. Now it's being questioned whether that's real or not. <laughs> we can feel sort of offended, you know, maybe a bit anxious, like, you know, is that really what's being discussed here? But um, 
what we can do is just look at our own direct experience and we can see, yes, thinking happens, no question. Seeing happens, hearing happens, feeling happens, tasting, touching, no question. It's just that the next step is an assumption. Therefore, there must be a separate individual self that is the one feeling, hearing, seeing, etc. So if we went up to a person on the street and just uh, asked them, you know, uh, you know, sir, you know, you can see me, correct? You can hear me, correct? Um, what is it that's hearing and seeing me? And um, the person would look at you like you were crazy, right? <laughs> Another crazy person on the street. And I mean, if 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 there's any response at all, it would be like, well, it's me, of course. You know, it's crazy even to ask. Of course, it's me thinking. And that's how it's usually dismissed, just out of uh, you know indignation, right? Like, what a silly question. Except when we actually go to look for it, that's when the difficulty happens. So we're not in any way denying that sense perceptions happen, thinking happens, feeling happens. We're only investigating to whom does it happen. So there's um, just in some ways, like we did at the at the beginning, and just investigated different um, sensory perceptions, um, and we can do that without the need to uh, refer it back to someone that's having that perception. So let, let's just take this uh, sense perception of hearing. There's a um, um, Zen story that um, Eckhart Tolle's quite fond of telling. And the story is that um, this old Zen master is out for a walk in the mountains and he has a younger student that's sort of a novice, has only been around for 10 years, but you know, still trying to get the hang of it. And um, the young monk uh, asked the Zen master, you know, tell me, tell me about Buddha nature. And um, you know, in typical Zen fashion, they don't try to explain anything. Um, so the Zen master says, can you hear that mountain stream in the distance? And uh, the young monk says, no, I, no, I can't. And I said, well, just listen more closely. And so, you know, there's just an increased level of attentiveness, you know, just sort of not, you know, at that point, the young monk's totally out of his philosophical mind, out of his thinking mind. He's not. He's not thinking about a mountain stream. He's actually trying to hear it and just um, getting very quiet and open and receptive. And finally he says, yeah, yeah, I do. Faintly, I hear it. And that was, that was the lesson, right? Um, what the, the older Zen monk was doing was pointing at reality directly not talking about it. 
right? So that's one of the um, benefits of just working with perceptions directly. You know, just being with the actual perception without the mind coming in, trying to explain it, trying to understand what it means, trying to uh, see the deeper meaning of it. No, no, no. Just be with the sound directly. <laughs> There's also, I mean, we can do the same thing with the sense of, of um, sight, right? Um, one of the things that I've learned how to do since I've been here at age, I don't know, 60-something, um, was to operate the excavator that we have here. I'd never done that before. And when you first um, get on that kind of machine, it's um, not intuitive at all. There are lots of things to do with your hands, and it feels very clumsy at first. Um, and you try to you try to do it from your head about this lever does this, that lever does that, and um, it can take a while before the body becomes conditioned to move without thought being involved. Right after a while, I mean, we do the same thing with driving a car. Um, but for most of us, we've done that for so long that we've forgotten how non-intuitive it was in the first place. So this is even less intuitive than that. But after a while, um, several hundreds of hours, um, the, what happens is um, the gaze is forward and um, um, there's a general idea of what needs to be done, and um, the body takes care of the rest. No thought involved, right? Attention, awareness is fully present. The body knows how to move, but it's done um, without having to think about it. It's not like, now I have to move this lever to the right, no too much, a little less, none of that. It's just, it's just a, a movement and happening within awareness. And there's something quite pleasant about that, um, of using various things in our life that sort of get us out of our thinking mind. So a lot of activities do that. In fact, anything that we find enjoyable often has that characteristic that we're able to um, function um, in a way that's pleasant for the body without having to uh, engage our thinking mind and that self-judging um, iteration and you know worry about doing it right and um, all of that movement. It's much more just being present for um, the activity. Okay, I mean, we can use, you look at the same thing with regard to a sense of feeling, right? We can feel, let's say we could, uh, feel grief, deep grief, that movement, that feeling could be surging through the body, just a, a deep sadness. Um, and we can just be with that and allow that to be. What often comes into the picture is um, our mind saying, um, 
this feels like you're a little out of control, or I wonder where this is going to end, or maybe you're not feeling as much grief as you think you should feel, or, you know, all of these other storylines um, inserted into the situation from, from our mind. Okay. So, um, you know, if we're uh, engaged in an activity that we truly enjoy, um, then there's not really a need for personal will, is there? We do, we're doing it because we enjoy it. The idea of personal will begins to come in when um, there's a sense of, well, I should do this, or um, I, I have to do this. Right? And then there's some resistance to that. And it's like, no, I'm going to use my, my will here. This is, I'm going to push through and, and do this. So, um, you know, we can just look at that and see how much of that is really just um, the opposition of two thoughts arguing with each other. You know, because if we're really um, engaged and aligned with what we're doing, then how much personal will is really involved? Right? It's not, there's not someone upstairs trying to um, enforce its will on our behavior. It's like our behaviors are functioning as happening. And we're there to enjoy it. We're there to be present for it. But you know, when the when the thinking mind comes in, it sort of muddles up the the issue. It's sort of like when um, have you ever worked in a, a place where um, the boss was um, you know maybe overly meddling in affairs every day and then things worked much more smoothly when they weren't around right? so it's sort of like that when um when this mental manager isn't um engaged in telling us what we should do or have to do or should have done um and things just happen and they flow and um you know we feel sort of in alignment with life, then then things things work out pretty smoothly. And um, you know, often when that doubting or questioning or judging mind comes in, it creates difficulty. It's like um, you know, if you have a figure skater, for example, and uh, you know, before or after their performance, they might um, you know be worried and you know about their image or how well they'll do or um, you know, what they'll say afterwards if, if they win or if they don't win or, you know, all of those kind of thought processes happen, maybe. But during the performance, if they're still thinking those thoughts, they're, they're not going to get any medals, right? You know, in that case, they have to uh, just be present for uh, the degree to which their body has been conditioned to perform. And to be present for it. That that's what's that's what's needed. Be fully present for it without the thought process coming in. Like I hope I don't mess this next jump up. Right. Be fully there. There's also an, um, 
you know, Western movies, you know, these two gunslingers out on Main Street going to face off each other. One, one of the things they almost always do is um, to insult each other first before anybody, you know, draws their gun. They, they, they make sure they insult the other person. And um, I mean, the reason that they're doing that is they're trying to get the other person in their head, right? Get them to get them mad, you know, get them to get them off their game, get them in their thinking mind rather than, um, you know, their instinctive um, awareness that is necessary in a life or death situation. So if the sense is that, well, you know, maybe it doesn't always work out, but at least I have the sense that I can, I can make a decision and uh, it's my decision and therefore it's worth something. Okay, great. If that's the sense of it um, and you feel like you have the free will to do that, to make that decision um, and that choice, then uh, the consequence of that is that um, you're responsible. Not a little responsible, not sometimes responsible, but if you have the ability, the free will to make a choice, then you're responsible always. Okay, so that means that you're responsible um, when you fix that annoying habit, you're responsible when you don't, you're responsible um, when you um, become judgmental, you're responsible for um, failing to stop chewing your nails, you're responsible for the outcome of your actions, always. And when we believe that uh, life has a um, has a seriousness about it, right? No one, no wonder it feels so burdensome, you know. If, but that's what most people feel, unconsciously or not, that they somehow are responsible. But if we can really see how much of our behavior and thought patterns are a function of um, things that are not under our control, you know, genetics and conditioning and prior experiences, all of which have this happenstance nature. Okay, so um, there's a um, phrase in, well known in uh, Christianity, thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. You know, so the phrase actually comes from uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was um, when he realized what was being asked of him, when he realized that his um, life would soon come to an end, that he was going to face a um, agonizing death and um he, uh, he was alone in this garden at night. And um, the way it's normally quoted is, not my will, but thy will be done. Yeah, what's, what's, what was actually reportedly said, I mean, no one else was there, 
but what was um, what was reportedly said was, uh, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering from my lips. However, not my will, but thy will be done. Right. So this is a much more um, human um, response. Right? So he's basically saying, my, my first choice is not to do this. But if that's what needs to be done, I'm on board. Right. So the thy will be done was actually his second choice. Right. And for most of us, it's, it's, it's similar um, that we can go through a life um, imagining that, you know, we're in, we're in charge, we're in control of my existence, my decisions, my, um, what I do, what I think, um, except when we get cornered, except when we find ourselves in a place of, um, that we can't get out of by our own apparent willpower. And those are the times when we typically say, um, thy will be done, right? It's really almost as a plea, right? It's like I've tried everything I can, but now I can't, and I'm asking. I'm asking for grace, really. So this statement, not my will, but thy will be done, it can be looked at in, in two different ways. One is... Um, most from a egocentric way where it's like um, we're granting some right, granting a right that we possess, namely my will. And, um, but in this, at least in this one particular circumstance, maybe not always, but in this one particular circumstance, I will um, grant God, source, the right to, do what, whatever happens, right? So we give our way our autonomy in that instance, right? So it's sort of like I have this possession, but I'm going to give it to you in this case because I've, I've run out of options. And uh, so there's that, there's that movement as if there's something of great value that we are relinquishing. Okay. So the, the other way, it can be interpreted or understood um, is that it's merely an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement of what's already and always the case. Right? So it's not like a possession, you know, of immense value that I have and I'm willing at least occasionally to grant to source, but it's something that I recognize is always the case. And it's just a statement of that recognition, not my will, but thy will be done. Okay. In um, Advaita, there is a um, 
you know, common, uh, one of the things that's commonly repeated is um, there's only God's will, right? Um, it's stated as a objective fact. And uh, to Western ears, that, that can sound um, debilitating, <laughs> you know, you know, taking taking our independence away, our authority away, but it's it, it's actually there's a difference between uh, you know it, it's a broad generalization in Eastern um, religions, things are stated not so much as um, for the benefit of creating a nice structured philosophy as a way, more as a way to um, push um, people towards having uh, self-realizing experience, right? So this idea of it's all God's will is another way of saying the same thing, not my will, but thy will be done. And it's also another way of saying, allow everything to be as it is, right? But to Western ears, you know, the, the phrase allow everything to be as it is sounds like giving up. Sounds like um, we're handing over our um, own personal authority. And, um, you know, especially the way things are structured um, in most Western religions of Western origin, um, in that we have a, uh, a God, a creator, and we have creation. There's, there's an entity, not us, something separate that has made the world in a short period of time, even. Um, in Taoism, that's a completely... Um, uh, the, the concept wouldn't even be considered. It's not part of that vocabulary at all. Um, uh, the word Tao is um, not separate. It, it doesn't separate creator from creation. It's it's life. It's the immensity of life. It's the movement ever, ever, um, ever creating capacity of life to renew itself, to regenerate itself, to, um, birth itself to uh, grow of itself, um, which is quite a different concept than an external aloof entity, all powerful, creating this creation and then judging how we operate within it. So when we take this idea of um, thy will be done, if it's if it's being handed over to some external higher power, it has a different feeling than um, a recognition of uh, giving, um, not even giving, but recognizing our own um, uh, non-separation from life, from the immensity of life itself, the recognition that what we are is not other than a manifestation of source, however that's conceived, um, and therefore not separate from 
You know, as as this body mind organism, I mean, the I mean, even on an ecological level, there's there's no possibility of it being separate from the one reality. Right? The only thing that could ever separate it from the one reality is a thought, a believed thought. You know, there's an old saying that um, uh, a single thought is enough to separate heaven and hell. A better phrase is a, a single thought believed is enough to separate heaven and hell. Right? It's the only thing that can. So to come back to the original question of is there free will or not, um, the question has to really be clarified because the it has to do with who are we talking about? Free will for whom? Are we talking about does this illusory idea of a separate personal self entity does that illusory entity have free will no not possible right but if there's not the believed idea of separation from the one manifestation separation from life itself Then the question is, does life have free will? If we're not other than life, then the question boils down to, does life have free will? But every evidence is just this infinite, amazing, creative, unfolding, dynamic, <laughs> immense, surprising, awesome movement. And when the recognition of what we actually are is not other than that, there's a sense of having traded in this um, concept, erroneous concept of personal free will for um, coming into alignment with the immensity of life itself. Right? And allowing that to be as it is, because life itself is seen as one reality. Creator, creation, not separate, not two separate things. Life is source manifested. Awareness is source that has the capacity to witness and participate in that 
manifestation, no separation. And not only no separation, no relinquishment of a separate self. There never was one. There never could be one. What we find out that we give up is a um, innocent misunderstanding. We give up what we thought we were and find out what we have always been. And that's the journey, however long that takes. It doesn't have to take long at all. It's just a recognition, a recognition of what's already the case when we're not consumed by believing unexamined thoughts. And that we do have the power to do. And we can make that choice to examine unexamined thoughts, concepts, ideas, beliefs, all of them. And when we've exhausted that search, what we discover is left is what we are. We can't say much about it. We can't really explain it to anybody, nor to ourselves. But it's real. There's no doubt. And it is freedom itself. Because without our ideas of separation, what's left is um, alignment with life, with that life force that's already present, already present in and as us, all. Oh. 